The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by HubSpot. Imagine growing a business with high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, and wildly happy customers. It's not a miracle. It's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today. LinkedIn presents. I am way out in the lunatic fringe in terms of arguing that we have no free will whatsoever. And moreover, I make the argument that the more people who come to believe this, the more humane of a planet it's going to be. What is up, people? It's Wednesday. This is the Next Big Idea Daily, the show where we ask for 10 to 15 minutes of your day. And in that short time, we hope to improve your life, to inspire you, to motivate you, to help you ask big questions. Today's question is one of the biggest. Do you have free will? If you spend any time thinking about this question, you've probably realized it cuts to the bone of what it means to be alive, to be human. It ties into your views on consciousness, science, and faith. And you may know that it's a question that has divided philosophers, neuroscientists, and other thinkers for centuries. Here with his very opinionated take on the matter is Robert Sapolsky, author of the new book, Determined, A Life of Science Without Free Will. Robert is a professor of biology, neurology, and neurosurgery at Stanford University and the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. Here he is to share some of his big ideas. Hi, this is Robert Sapolsky. I'm a professor of biology and neurology at Stanford University and the author of the new book, Determined, A Science of Life Without Free Will. And as implied in the very title, where we start off with is, I am way out in the lunatic fringe in terms of arguing in the book that we have no free will whatsoever. And moreover, I make the argument in the book that the more people who come to believe this, the more humane of a planet it's going to be. The argument comes down to essentially that we are nothing more or less than the sum of our biology that we had no control over and its interaction with environment over which we had no control and that those are the factors that made us who we are in this very moment. In that scenario, there was no room for something like free will. So let me try to convince you of this. Who you are at this moment is nothing more or less than the outcome of everything that came before, which in the context of behavior would look like the following. Okay, someone does something, a behavior, it's wonderful, it's awful, it's ambiguous, and we ask, why did they just do what they did? And what that actually is, is a whole cascade, a whole hierarchy of questions. What went on in that person's brain a half second ago, which caused their muscles to pull that trigger, for example? But we're also asking, what went on in that person's environment in the previous couple of minutes that triggered the brain to take that action? For example, studies show if you put someone in a room with a smell of like disgusting, rotten garbage, people on the average become more socially conservative on a questionnaire. And they haven't a clue that it's got anything to do with the smell in the room. But you're also asking, what about hormone levels from this morning? 
One example of that, there's a hormone called oxytocin. And if the levels in your bloodstream happen to be elevated, um, you are now more likely than chance to be extremely generous in an offer to a friend in some sort of economic game. You become more trusting, more affiliative, all of that because of hormone levels a few hours ago. But then we got to push back to previous months, years, decades. Did you go through some major trauma? Did you find love? Did you find God? Whatever it is, it will have caused a change in your brain, this very sexy new field of neuroplasticity, where the actual structure and function of your brain will have been changed by experience like that. For example, if you went through severe trauma and you now have PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, one of the things that happens is on a nuts and bolts level, you have changed the structure of a part of your brain called the amygdala, which has to do with fear and anxiety. Your amygdala will have grown larger, and as a result, you're going to see threats that other people don't. You are going to have trouble determining that you're actually safe. Your brain will be working differently in that instant where you're deciding whether or not to pull a trigger. But you got to push even further back. Adolescence, there's a part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, and it is essential for doing things like impulse control and emotional regulation. And it turns out the prefrontal cortex is the last part of your brain to be fully formed. It is not finished with this construction until you're in your mid-20s. What does that mean? Your environment in late adolescence, early adulthood is shaping what kind of frontal cortex you are going to have going into that instant as an adult where you have to decide, should I pull a trigger or not? Then, of course, you got to go back to childhood and even fetal life. What sort of stressors, what sort of stimuli, and this has even been formalized by now, you can get an ACE score, A-C-E for Adverse Childhood Experiences. How awful was your childhood at a scale from zero to 10? Were you subject to physical abuse, psychological abuse, sexual abuse? Were you witness to, did somebody in the family have a substance abuse problem? Was somebody incarcerated? You get your ACE score. And remarkably, what the studies show is for each additional step you have in your zero to 10 A score, for each additional bit of horrendous childhood luck that you had, each additional step, there's about a 35% increased chance that as early adult, you will have gotten into trouble with the criminal justice system with a history of antisocial, aggressive, violent behavior. And you had no control over that. And you had no control over, say, your mother's stress hormone levels back when you were a fetus. And that's going to have been influencing what kind of brain you were constructing. In other words, be very careful what womb you pick to develop in for nine months, because that's part of it. But then you got to push back further. Genes, genes and their interactions with environment. For example, there's one gene that comes in two different versions. And if you have one bad luck version, what that means is if and only if you're exposed to a lot of stress in childhood, you are now about a 30-fold increased risk of having a major depressive disorder in adulthood. 
If you didn't have the childhood stressors like that, no effect whatsoever. Genes interacting with environment, and once again, neither of which you had any control over. But then, amazingly, you got to push one step further back. What kind of culture were your ancestors inventing centuries ago? Because that's going to influence how the offspring of those ancestors were raised and what values and what values they passed on to their kids and their kids and their kids and thus how you were raised. As one example of this, one of the classic dichotomies out there for people who study stuff like this is the difference between what are called collectivist cultures. Standard version is Southeast Asian rice farming communities where everybody works cooperatively to maintain a thousand-year-old irrigation system. Everybody plants and harvests each other's fields, all highly collectivist versus the poster child of what are called individualist cultures, United States, where you see just the opposite. And what it turns out is if your mother is from a collectivist culture versus an individualist culture, that's going to influence how many seconds on the average an infant cries before she picks them up. How many months go by before they stick you in a room to sleep alone rather than in bed with your mother? How loudly she sings lullabies to you? In other words, what was going on centuries ago with culture is going to have influenced how you were being raised within minutes of birth. Now, the key point out of this insight is not that, ooh, all of these different disciplines, neurobiology, endocrinology, genetics, cultural anthropology make a difference. The point is they all become one discipline when you look closely. What do I mean by this? If you were talking about genes, by definition, you're talking about millions of years of the evolution of those genes. In addition, if you're talking about genes, you're talking about your childhood and the epigenetic effects that childhood experience had on gene regulation for the rest of your life. And if you're talking about genes, you're talking about the proteins they specified that you made in your brain 20 minutes ago. It's one long arc of biological influences interacting with environmental ones over which you had no control and over which there is not a crack anywhere there into which you can shoehorn in a notion of free will. Most people are willing to admit there's some things you have no control over, some things that were biologically or environmentally determined. Like if you were not seven foot eight, you were probably not going to play in the NBA. If you didn't have the right combination of genes interacting with environment, you're probably not going to have a great memory span if you happen to be on Jeopardy, something like that. People will accept that, that there are attributes, natural attributes that we have, which we had no control over, but where free will comes in in most people's view is, what do you do with those attributes? Are you five foot three Muggsy Bogue who played in the NBA for years? Are you Thomas Edison who went through more than a thousand versions of a failed experiment before he got light bulbs to work? Do you show tenacity and backbone and that sort of thing. And on the other hand, are you gifted with all sorts of wonderful attributes? And then you waste them, you squander them. For example, wealthy families on the average, 70% of them have lost their wealth by the second generation 
because they've squandered it. You look in that domain, yes, 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 stuff we had no control over, what attributes you have, but ooh, what you do with those attributes, that's the measure of you as a person. That's your gumption, that's your backbone, that's your self-indulgent squandering, all of that's where we see free will. And the reality is, that sort of stuff, tenacity, is made of the same exact biology as every one of those traits that you view as having been gifted to you by chance. And it all revolves around that prefrontal cortex, because that's where tenacity versus self-indulgence comes from. Just as an example showing the prefrontal cortex is made of the same biology, if you happen to have had elevated levels of testosterone this morning, regardless of your sex, your prefrontal cortex wouldn't be working as well at restraining your amygdala from doing something idiotic and impulsive. If you've been stressed over recent months, your prefrontal cortex will have atrophied a little bit. If you screwed up and you picked the wrong womb once again, and you developed nine months in the womb of a woman who was highly stressed by poverty, at birth, your prefrontal cortex is already a little bit behind developmentally. What we see in all these cases, the notion that tenacity is where we show our free will, this is simply folk intuition. Tenacity is made of as much biology as any other attribute we have. And the same punchline looking back a second ago to a million years ago, there's not any room in there to shoehorn in this folk notion of free will. Okay, uh, you've convinced me there's no free will. Oh my God, how are you supposed to function if the whole world actually accepted that? Everybody's going to run amok. And something that I try to emphasize in the book is that's really unlikely to happen. There are studies where if you prime someone, manipulate them into believing a little bit less in free will, they're going to cheat more if they play a game immediately afterward. But when you look at people who have thought long and hard about questions about free will and have thought, where does human goodness come from? What is our purpose for being here? All of that. And what you see is if you've done that work, it doesn't matter if you've concluded that there is free will and I'm responsible for my actions, or there's no free will, what you see is the exact same very high levels of ethical behavior. Okay, okay, we're not all going to run amok, but there's still going to be dangerous people out there. What do we do with them? We've got to punish them, jail them, retribution, all of that. We need a criminal justice system. And we don't need it at all as soon as you recognize there's no free will. We don't need to invoke blame or punishment. All we need to do is the same sort of things when you have a car whose brakes aren't working. The car's dangerous. It can't be out on the street. What do you do? You put it in the garage. You don't drive it, but you don't bash it on the hood every day as punishment for it being brakeless. You don't preach to it. You constrain it, and you do nothing more than that. And we do the same thing, for example, when your kid is sneezing a lot and you keep them home from kindergarten tomorrow. You make sure they can't harm anyone with their germs, but you sure don't tell them they can't play with their toys today because they've been bad. We've learned over and over that we could subtract out a sense of responsibility 
and still keep people safe from damaging individuals. And what's also clear as part of that insight is the flip side holds as well, which is meritocracy, praise and reward makes no sense either because those people didn't earn it any more than somebody earned their long prison sentence. So that brings up a worry. Oh my God. Okay, okay, we're not going to have murderers running around on the streets, but what, we're going to have some random incompetent person take out your brain tumor? No, not at all. We have to learn how to make sure dangerous people are kept off the streets and competent people are doing really vital, difficult things, but do it where out of it does not come this notion that this makes for somebody deserving more or less consideration of their needs than you deserve. Thank you, Robert. Robert's actually going to be a guest tomorrow on our sister podcast, The Next Big Idea, hosted by Rufus Griscom. So if you want to dive deeper into Robert's ideas on free will, be sure to check that out. Here on this podcast, we're going to talk about meetings tomorrow, but not those big, awkward work gatherings you're probably sick of. We're going to talk about those professional get-togethers you probably don't even think of as meetings, one-on-ones. We'll be joined by Steven Rogelberg, author of the new book, Glad We Met, The Art and Science of One-on-One Meetings. Our curator, Dan Pink, calls Steven the world's leading scholar of meetings. So come on back tomorrow and check that out.